0: Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IRG founders Frank van den Driest and Mark de swann will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Good evening. This is Mark de Swan Islands and I'm very, very happy to uh, welcome uh, Keith Reed. It's fantastic to see you. Where are you and how are you?
1: I'm at my home in Surrey, which is just south of London. Uh, I'm very well. Uh, The sun has been out. It's a little bit cloudy today. The garden looks absolutely fabulous.
0: Well, I'm in uh, Woodstock, New York, which is two hours north. Uh, The sun is out and the temperature is up. I'm, I'm very happy that we have the time today. Uh, you are gonna be talking a lot about your history at Unilever, but I, um, I wanna start with congratulations because uh, this week your new role was announced, am I right? Thank
1: you, yes. So, so um, I'm joining the board of Sainsbury's, which is um, a large retailer in the UK, mainly supermarkets, but it also owns Argos. So it's a combination of food and, and then also a sort of direct to consumer, uh, electrical and, and uh, non-food items.
0: Fantastic. And of course, you're also on the board of WPP, one of the uh, partners of the Institutes for Real Growth. So the Institute is an entity that uh, is only a year old now. And um, we have as our purpose to connect uh, growth leaders to best practices, learning and each other as well as experts around driving real growth, which we define as um, human-centric growth that is oriented towards a multi-stakeholder audience. And and we'll talk a, a lot about that. I, I want to jump right in. I, I have too many questions for us to cover. And, and I know that your story is a rich one. Now, Keith, we've talked a few times over the years about your journey as a marketing leader first, and then as uh, your role as a, a change leader, really, uh, a growth leader within Unilever. And I was um, r- listening back to uh, the last recording. You talked about uh, 2009, Paul Pullman. He said to you, never waste a good crisis. And that was the start of a 10 year journey that we will be talking about now. He said that then, post the 2008 crisis, and here we sit, not even able to go to our offices after a much bigger crisis. So um, it strikes me that the the time to have this conversation uh, couldn't be more ripe.
1: Yes, I mean, it's... it's, um... It's remarkable about the uh, impact everyone is in right now and I hope all people listening are are well and um, are safe and manage to navigate these very challenging times and uh, I know we'll be talking generally but of course uh, at the end of the day people have had all sorts of different experiences over these past few weeks and you know the only thing I'd say in the conversation we're about to uh, have Mark is um, some things that I'll be saying will be the, um, the bleeding obvious, and hopefully that will confirm things that people are already thinking about and say, yeah, that makes sense and I'll, I'll carry on. There'll be other things which might challenge uh, what people are, are thinking or doing right now, and, that, and that's good as well, that'd be a good result because then you think like, oh, maybe I should rethink this. And hopefully there might even be some new ideas as well. What I'm keen to do, you know, I, I do this more and more now, is uh, try and engage with people uh, from different places in this whole sort of journey, which I think uh, mankind is, is uh, uh, or humankind is on, um, in business. And that is very much about getting businesses to, to really go back to where they used to be. Businesses started by serving society, serving people. And if you served uh, a person with a, with a product or a service better than someone else, uh, your business would grow and, and, and the other person, the competitor's business, uh, would decline. I think somewhere in the 80s and 90s, businesses sort of lost that sort of, that compass and started getting to selling more stuff. And when you get into selling more stuff, I think you then ultimately do not put the consumer and society in the centre of your business, but you put all sorts of other things, including shareholders, etc., which are very important, don't get me wrong, but it's not what businesses are about as far as serving consumers and customers. I think 2009 was a really good example of that. I had been running a global laundry and household care business for Unilever. And it was a business that five years previously I was asked by the then CEO Patrick Sesco to turn around, one of those famous things. It was a declining business. Quite unusual, really, because laundry is, is one of the cornerstone categories of Unilever. That's where it all started, you know, Lever Brothers. What was quite striking, the business was declining, household care, the home care business was up for sale. We'd already sold frozen foods and Prestige and Unilever and this was the next one on the chopping block and could we turn it round and the next five years I learned an awful lot. The first thing I learned actually is you can't turn businesses around very quickly um, and I got very um, shaken by my initial lack of success and uh, those um, who were on the journey with me will remember it, the declining business carried on declining you yeah. The trend is your friend. Um, and I thought, um, oh my God, i made a terrible mistake here. And what I really should have done is um, carried on where I was before. And taking on this great challenge as it was presented to me was going to turn into a great disaster. But the good news uh, in following really basic things, I mean, we call things strategy, but strategy is really about choices and, and focusing on, on, on choices. On, on laundry, it was just getting back to being consumer-focused and really appreciating that the majority of the world washed their clothes by hand. And indeed, from that, made the right sort of products and started taking on our competition, which was P&G, who was very much winning then, and Unilever had lost. And at the end of that story, uh, I'd built also the Cleaner Planet plan, which was the first sort of foray into a sustainability plan. And then Paul arrived. Paul was uh, keen to assemble a new executive team. And he basically put together half people from outside Unilever, which at the time was very unusual. Because most people uh, sort of grew up and got promoted within Unilever. And then half from people within Unilever. At that stage, laundry and household care was growing again. In fact, the fastest growing business that Unilever had. I hasten to add, uh, 10 years later, still the fastest growing business Unilever has. So sustained growth. And he asked me to do this job, which I have to say to start with, I didn't think sounded like a good idea. And he said, I want you to be the chief marketing officer. um, And I want you to run sustainability and I want you to run communications. And what we really want to do is reinvent the way business is done and put sustainability, environmental and social sustainability, at the core of the business.
0: I think you make a really important point, which a lot of our participants have uh, perhaps discussed, but I don't know if that has landed. You and, uh, for example, Jim Stengel, your counterpart, you just mentioned Procter & Gamble. You both, as well as a, a number of other uh, I would call them big CMOs, the Da Vinci CMOs, had had the marketing role, had moved on to a P and L role. In other words, you've you've gotten your credibility as a business leader, and we're almost um, tempted back for a role which was called Chief Marketing Officer. Although I know there were some additions there, but it was actually a much bigger role. How he enticed you to play that role is is good for everybody to hear, and but also to realise that there's two stages there. You've done the marketing bit, the functional bit, and now the, the brief was much bigger, wasn't it?
1: First of all, actually, like, you know, I'd run business, I'd run the UK business, I'd run a like, you know, global business. I hasten to add, you know, when... Unilever was not doing well uh, in Laundry and um, and hence we had to turn it around. That is when Jim uh, was indeed the CMO of of Procter & Gamble. I hasten to add, uh, Jim then left, um, and during my time, uh, it was Unilever that got momentum and started uh, growing share. Um, So luckily we never competed directly against each other. Paul was keen to to bring together something that was uh, a strategic change for Unilever. He often said that... um, at the end of the day, you know, on the executive, there were people who were running North America or Europe, and although they were Unilever, their primary focus was North America or Europe, or people running tea and ice cream or whatever um, personal care. But their primary focus was that. And he said, What well, "You know, the role I want you to do is be able to see across Unilever, uh, help uh, me reinvent uh, the way business is done and the way business is done in, in Unilever." So, so yes, very much so. It started off. Actually started off just doing a uh, comprehensive piece of trends work in understanding where the business is going. One of the things I'd say to everyone who uh, is online as a CMO, is I often used to tease our very good CFO, Graham Pickettley, that his job was to count where the money was going, and that it was spent uh, responsibly. But my job was to work out where the money was coming from, uh, and how we were gonna grow into the future. And I think if you can, as a marketeer, own the outside, bring the outside in and the future forward. Right now, with all the uncertainty, uh, being able to show uh, this is where the world's going and this is where we could go, is a tremendous relief to your colleagues uh, on the executive. And so we did a a big piece of of, um, trends work and came up with 20 big trends and and four mega trends within that, and unsurprisingly, uh, you'll say now, one of them was, Uh, about sustainable challenges and the environment.
0: Uh, To emphasize a point, and you were one of the contributors to the CMO profile, the growth CMO profile, called the Da Vinci Growth Profile. Number one on that list is decoding the world, a testimony to the plea you just made. But I think it's also good to uh, emphasize that's not just about owning information about the customer, is it? It's not just about consumer insights.
1: No, I think it's business as well, because um, one of the other trends was uh, about the, the world going digital and you'll say, well, OK, that's, that makes sense. No, no, no. Ten years ago when we did this piece of work, uh, it wasn't obvious that to a soup and soap company like Unilever that digital will have any meaningful uh, impact. I did one of the very early trips to Silicon Valley. Uh, I took the executives with us. This is the, the time when you used to actually sit down with Mark Zuckerberg and, and chat about sort of uh, how advertising could impact uh, Facebook or indeed, of course, uh, the other big companies you've seen down absolutely Google and Amazon, but also Yahoo, of course, was a very big company then. And Apple had just launched the iPad. I remember um, handing out iPads to, uh, to the people uh, on the trip. But these were understanding from a business perspective as well, what was going to uh, impact uh, Unilever. And and I felt my job, as I say, was outside in, future forward. Uh, And I've been going to the uh, Consumer Electronics Show uh, in in Vegas every year for the last 10 years. Was there, in fact, this January, uh, Alan Joke, the CEO of Unilever Now, asked me to come back and uh, and take him and the Unilever executive to to CS, yes. and uh, at the end of last year, I helped lead uh, actually a trip for the Unilever board to go to Silicon Valley. Even though you know I left for Unilever last May, so I think the answer is is this is about multi stakeholder, um, and yes. it's about understanding how a business goes together. And absolutely, consumer customer for me is in the centre. In fact, a Unilever used to say our number one priority is our, our consumer. And then we went on and talked about uh, our retailers and our employees and he said, and if all those are well satisfied, um, shareholders will be well rewarded. And the notion is that shareholders being rewarded because we're doing our job well and the business is vibrant was was a sort of a key part of that multi-stakeholder approach. But let me just unpack multi-stakeholder a little bit more because the big thing about multi-stakeholder approach is is really, as a marketer, is not getting caught up that it's about just about brands and advertising and consumers. I think, as a marketer, it is about owning the, 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 the growth levers out to all your different audiences and being able to bring that to the board table. And um, if we go back to the, the origins of, of, of Unilever and back to uh, William Hesketh lever, or Lord Leverhulme, as he became, uh, he was quite a, a social entrepreneur in, in so many ways, and he saw the dirt and squalor of Victoria in England, and very much felt that, that there was something he could do about it. And um, the thing that he could do about it was uh, take soap to the masses. There was a, a great quote I saw in the archives of, of uh, Unilever, and' it was a quote from Disraeli, who was the prime minister. And Disraeli said, "You know "England is a country divided in two. For one, the sun never sets." Or the other, the sun never rises. Lord Leverhulme uh, basically said, "You know, I'm going to take soap to the masses," and he launched one of the first brands actually in the world. I mean, there were always brands, and Ford and uh, Lipton tea, etc. But those were brands named after their founders, uh, Thomas Lipton uh, and uh, and others. And he was one of the first to actually create a brand called Sunlight, and he built the largest private port in the world up in Port Sunlight, as it was called near Liverpool and started exporting port sunlight uh, materials of sunlight soap and Lifebuoy soap uh, around the world. And this is way before EY and uh, McKinsey were saying uh, we should have purpose statements. And he had a purpose statement, he wanted to make cleanliness commonplace. Cleanliness commonplace. Um, And uh, you're very apt actually for today. Um, And indeed, uh, to this day, Unilever is still uh, the, uh, the largest soap company in the world. And um, it's interesting seeing the ads being done right now during COVID 19. Um, and whether it be Dove um, ads or Lifeboy ads or whichever soap brand, they very much uh, talk to the benefits of washing your hands uh, with soap, which indeed is yep. the first line defense. Yep. But then it says, but wash your hands with Dove or any soap. Um, and they even put logos up of the, of the competitors. So they make it oh, much, more, seen that. <laughs> uh, much more of a public service. And I think what's good about that is then they're not sort of seen as taking advantage, but more service to society. Well, you know, I, I just wanted to chip in and
0: add to that that um, we, you know, I've been based in the U.S. now for um, 25 years, actually. Talking about purpose, so often I find that Americans say, yeah, well, that's, you know, that European thing. Uh, that's they can do that, and, and and it's and it's absolutely not true. And, you know, exactly at the same time as Lord Lever was working up in the north of England, uh, Hershey was building a village which had childcare, which had education, which had safety. It's a, a blueprint. In fact, I I'd argue, and you said that a little bit earlier, that was why people started companies to make a difference, not to make a lot of money. Uh, they did. They made money if they made a big difference, and somewhere we'll get to that. People and companies lost their way. But you know this 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 conversation in many ways, is about codifying your learning because I believe, and that's why it's so special to have Paul next week as well uh, as a, as the i r g we believe that there is a blueprint there, everybody will have to do their version of it, but then there's something there to be emulated, so you started by saying, look i uh, we started with the consumer, actually we started with stakeholder understanding, decoding the world, we created that as a basis of a strategy process. And I, I'd love you to continue with that journey so that we really do hear that.
1: The, the, the other sort of big trends, um, other than the uh, digital revolution I talked to, uh, about, uh, was people living differently. Um, so that again, it's understanding uh, the big shift that was going on in the world um, and um, people moving into towns. Uh, if you move into uh, towns, You go from um, cooking, squatting down on a fire to cooking, standing up on on liquid petroleum gas. And if you stand up, you have surfaces either side of you and you have surfaces that need cleaning. If you go from uh, outside to inside, you need toilets in in towns, etc. So it was really understanding the big needs of the world uh, and being able to build a business accordingly. But the one I would like to emphasize a little bit, which goes much more into the the territory you're talking about, was the the need to um, create a more sustainable world going forward. And I think whatever business you work in, this still remains a huge opportunity. And we created this thing called the Sustainable Living Plan, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, uh, which I, and uh, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan had some differences then. uh, And there are things, of course, much more common now 10 years ago. But firstly, um, it was to look at the whole value chain. So this was saying, we're not just looking at our footprint, We're gonna look at our suppliers um, and where the raw materials come. And we're gonna look the other way, how our consumers use our products and dispose of our products. And we're responsible for the whole of that value chain. And still, actually, most businesses don't do that. More do, but most don't. So this would be like the car industry saying, we're responsible for the oil industry. I think that was an important part for you, Lee, because it really made us face into the issue about agricultural raw materials. If we carried on the way we did, Unilever was the biggest tea company in the world, the world would run out of tea. There was not enough sustainable tea to uh, give everyone uh, a cup of tea um, into the future with another 2 billion people joining the planet. So the thought about growing agricultural materials sustainably became uh, critical, not just because it's the right thing to do, but actually to to future-proof the business. Um, not just looking at where the value chain before us, but the value chain after us. How consumers were using and disposing of the product was was a part of our footprint as well. And, and in doing that, it really opened our eyes. And, and you know, at the time we were looking at about seven percent of our agricultural raw materials being sourced sustainably, uh, and now it's virtually 100 percent. So you know, the, the journey of that 10 years was, was significant. But we did turn to our suppliers and say, look we're on this journey, come with us. If you don't come with us, by the way, you won't be one of our suppliers in the future. So we gave people years and years of notice and worked with them to go, you can't just overnight say, you know, give me um, at the scale of Unilever, you know, every day, two and a half billion people use a Unilever product. So at that scale, you can't turn it over overnight.
0: Well, and you know, I, I, I wanna bring something in that I know is important to you and lots of people just don't know, when you When you say the word words become laden and when you say the word sustainable even if it's sustainable growth it's translated to green and um, I think an important addition to make is that you you really broaden that definition of sustainability to include social maybe you could talk a little bit about that I know it was later yeah. and that was a very
1: good point when we started the Unilever sustainable living plan uh, just as it, that's good conversation and um, uh, thanks we have a very good coach and interviewer here. Um, uh we were very environmentally focused um, and so I, I mentioned about that i was you know, we also had uh, targets around uh 100 you know uh, renewables for um power first of all electricity achieved and then uh, total power um and um, you know uh, making sure that we took zero uh waste to landfill from our factories these were massive targets which were achieved on the way but also what we realized was the importance of society and in fact absolutely to your point it it ended up being environmental social and economic sustainability and and in social we then brought in everything of course diversity and inclusion uh but also about you know how you'd help um you know uh, women entrepreneurs um it or not uh, most of um uh, the world's farming uh is is actually done by women Uh, smallholder farmers you leave a sources from over one and a half million smallholder farmers around the world, the vast majority of those farmers are women. Um, and you won't be surprised, the vast majority of land that they are farming on is owned by men. Uh, so that inequality uh, is still very striking to this day. And we started then working on this and saying, how could we work in a multi-stakeholder way to get uh, society to work in the right way? How could we help these um, smallholder farmers to be able to source sustainably because we wanted that and actually if they worked sustainably it was actually more efficient uh, and they would get uh, better yields uh, from their land so we tried to make it joined up Um, and the notion about serving society as well I, I think is key because I mean let's talk about right now a good example um, and I'll kick it to clean with the Unilever example, I feel a little guilty because um, I'm using Unilever a lot, but of course, you know, I was there for many years and, and, and did this role for nine. But right now, you know, around the factories uh, in, in the UK, cause I've just been chatting someone in the UK, you know, the local community, the hospitals. Uh, so not only is Unilever, you know, supplied hand wash and sanitizers and and skin creams to to carers and nurses and doctors as you'd imagine they do. They've even put in ice cream uh, freezers into the hospitals with free ice cream because it's been pretty hot here so the the nurses and, and, uh, and carers and doctors can help themselves to a free ice cream and of course the workers of those factories work in that community um, and so it's, it is also a reward back to your to your employers that you you help the community you're in. And, and I, you know one thing that really struck me with with water as, as a big challenge and a, one of the big challenges you're taking on that you know if you have a factory in India or Africa in a water-stressed place um, and you are shipping water in in tankers to your factories past drought-ridden villages. Uh, You have a societal problem Uh, and now when we build factories, we build factories to ensure that we can uh, get enough water Not just for the factory, but then to serve the community as well
0: So what I see and I think that this is very representative for uh, companies today is there's Paul There's you and a small cadre of people that Paul has now had the opportunity to bring into his leadership team and, um, and there is this vision of uh, perhaps, uh, in, in many ways, going back to the roots of, uh, of, of driving growth for all stakeholders with the understanding that it will be uh, financially the smart thing to do as well. Paul, of course, uh, famously on this first, uh, in his first week announced that quarterly reporting. Was out. He um, he talked in other interviews about going through the current stakeholder, the shareholders at that time, and making sure that they that Unilever had the right type of shareholders, people that were interested in long-term growth, not in a quick buck. Now you're you're setting this strategy, and I'd love you to take us through how you did two things. One, in your role as um, responsible for the stakeholder engagement broadly outside the organization really how did you engage who did you engage with what does that multi-stakeholder engagement look like but also and perhaps start there internally i mean yes you've drunk the kool-aid you realize this is the right thing to do because it's back to the roots and it feels right but there's a lot of people that don't have the information you have that perhaps came in in a phase that it was about making money and, and it was more business oriented and they don't even know Those routes are so. Can you talk about the internal and the external engagement process as you when you had your strategy?
1: Yeah, well, to be clear, it is about uh, making money as well. So, uh, I really want to emphasize that because, funny enough, I've had the same conversations with uh, people, particularly in the US, uh, where they say, What is the business case for sustainability, Uh, environmental and social sustainability? And I always answer, you know, I'd love to see the business case for the alternative. I'd love to see the business case for destroying the very planet we live in. The business case for destroying the very societies we're trying to serve. So I, I, I do think this is also about business delivery. And I hasten to add in those nine years. And Paul will say the same because it's the same. Uh, well, he was 10 years, I suppose, as CEO. I was nine years, nine and a half as uh, a as CMO. Um, every year we grew (laughs) sales and every year we grew profits and uh, we uh, tripled the share price and delivered 290 uh, shareholder returns so
0: that's why this case is so important this was about
1: hard-nosed business delivery but it was it was done through um, uh, a strategic shift and and so the first thing is is, uh, and I know you're speaking to Paul, so uh, he'll, I'm sure he'll talk a bit to this. So I don't really want to, because um, uh, other, otherwise people won't come back and listen to Paul, and he's well worth listening to. No, no, um, no. But he, Paul gave me communications as well, and um, and I didn't really quite understand why at the time. But it, you know, and I, if you're CMO now, I would start making a good uh, case uh, for taking over communications as well, because in a joined-up internet world, you can't have two people on the executive. Managing the the narrative and, and the story, and an internal memo one day can be an external memo another day, um, and indeed, what I could do is I could join up the story. So you talk about engagement with stakeholders, uh, internal and outside. You know, uh, I got all the communications team, which uh, was was several hundred people, to report directly into uh, mm-hmm. Sue Goward and then into me, um, and in doing so, we could very much. Um, get the discipline of a of a single minded story, you know. And you live in 190 countries, so you can imagine the amount of external engagement. And I'm a great believer. One of the best ways to communicate to your internal audience is uh, through external communication, because mm. if you say something, well, you know, Mark, you would say that, but if you read it in the Wall Street Journal, then it starts becoming, you know, the truth, as such. So one of the uh, the exercises was to uh, really. Uh, leverage the joined-up nature of marketing and communications, uh, and to find a way uh, to, to deliver a very single-minded message. Uh, and this was building on the uh, the purpose that Lord Lever had about making cleanliness commonplace, to say that we wanted to make sustainable living commonplace. And the idea that you, Lever, did uh, food and hygiene and cleaning and self-esteem and and basically was the foundation of uh, everyday life. Uh, and hence, if we could offer consumers a sustainable way of everyday life, we would help sustainable uh, living. Uh, and then uh, that, that classic thing about setting a, a vision and direction, absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more, it is then about engaging everyone um, uh, with huge repetition. Um, I can remember Paul saying he was bored of a certain speech, he'd given it five times one way or another, um, and, and me equally saying you're going to do it ten times, you know, yes, um, is you've got to repeat and repeat and repeat. Of course, refresh and use different anecdotes and whatever. Uh, but then also appreciate your audience is different, and 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 some people like to hear numbers. Some people like to hear that you're going to, you know, um, uh, help a billion people uh, wash their hands properly, which was a ridiculous target, a target by the way which has been achieved. Uh, we uh, Unilever has uh, in that ten years taught. 1.2 billion people how to wash their hands properly. And of course, a lot more uh, going on uh, right now. Some people love numbers. Other people like legacy stories. You know, we're going to whatever. Other people like like pictures um, and you need to bring alive your, your strategies through uh, visions of the future um, and where the world is going and etc. Um, and other people, of course, just like great prose and words. And so um, trying to mix up um, different ways of engaging people and being empathetic to people's understanding and listening styles, um, which again, might not feel right for you, but what so many people do is communicate to people in a way that motivates them. And so yeah. what they're doing a great job is motivating all the people who are, who are basically plumbed like them. And what you have to do quite, quite calculating is say, ah, oh, right, I'm going to do the message this way to get to all the people who are like me but I'm going to do messages this way to get to those other people and that way to get the other people. And right. I got a, actually a, a coach from a, a person from the theater um, who uh, helped uh, my imagination in the different ways of engaging um, with, with people. Um, and so first I, thing, I you need to build on that
0: for a second, because I, I think you make such an important point um, in this Da Vinci CMO profile. The last um, aspect of, of, of what we call these winning growth CMOs is indeed an inspiring storyteller but inspiring is a is a caveat because it's it's a it's a qualifier because inspiring as you say to a financial uh, leader of a company a cfo is very looks very different than inspiring to uh, another marketeer or perhaps an ngo that you're talking to in um, i'm going to plug the uh, irg program for a second now because what you've just talked about is such a good uh, testimony for uh, a piece that uh, has been um, contributed to the IRG program by Exeter, the um, senior leadership uh, coaching company, all the IRG participants, these are all CMOs and growth leaders um, from over 100 uh, companies around the world, uh, go through an exercise where they map their key stakeholders internally and externally, and and actually develop messaging strategies very specifically for key influencers. And, uh, and as you say, um, that Sort of set of people you're talking to has, so, has become so much bigger. Last week, you will have heard that um, we spoke with Professor Michael Diamond, who is a marketer, but he's also a communications man. And he was making the point that um, uh, yes, they need to come together, but not necessarily under the CMO. In, in B2B, you see that, that they often come together as a, under a CCO. So the B2C companies tend to have more. Um, But it doesn't take away from the importance of having an integrated um, uh, messaging strategy and that incredibly personal leadership that you need to um, adapt the message. Now, you ended up talking, I think Unilever at the time was 160,000 people. Didn't you tell me that you actually face to face, I mean you being the group, uh, talking to almost 100,000 of those people?
1: Uh, 90, yeah, 90,000. Um, uh, 90, I still believe, and I know we're all uh, here on Zoom, I still believe that uh, face-to-face is by far the best way to engage people. Uh, nice. But also to then get people to, I'm a great believer in the good old-fashioned cascade, um, and to get people then to pass the message on. Because the thing is, is, is um, uh, and the reason why cognitive therapy is so important, um, I don't know if anyone reads about this stuff is um we speak the truth you know first you speak the truth i speak the truth so um uh, you know if i think this shirt, shirt suits me um uh, and i tell myself that it that's the truth it suits me actually it's my opinion and and if you uh, don't like this shirt well that's your opinion and you're wrong mark but when we talk we hear what we say and because the way we're built we believe we speak the truth and so if you um, that's one of the reasons why in cognitive therapy they start saying you know stop you know telling yourself that you know life's terrible because you keep hearing it and life is it, and start trying to pretend happy and, and starting to talk and think about more positive things and similarly if you can get people to cascade messages and they have to stand up in front of people and say this is the direction the organization is going and this is why it's important and, and you know we collectively must do this not only are you passing the message on the person who's giving the message is being uh, brought on board as, as one of the disciples. And, uh, so yeah, how do probably.
0: you do that, Keith? And, and this, by the way, is a question from Annabelle Jack. She's one of the CMOs on our program. Um, uh, how do you do that when the nature of the people that you're talking to, as you just indicated, might be very different? Let's take the CFO.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? I mean, here you and Paul. Now, Paul had a financial background, I know, but he came from PG and Nestle, a lot of marketing running through his veins. And how do you talk to the financial group around an inspiring strategy like the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan?
1: So I think the answer is, is you, um, well, you mustn't do, and this is also true uh, from a marketing perspective, you mustn't just hold on to your, your metrics um, and, and keep pointing at them and ramming them down people's throats. Uh, mm. you know, if they're important, of course, make sure you have those. But you need to take on the metrics of the organization, and I think... Um, uh, owning the the breadth of the metrics and talking to the breadth of metrics. I mean, I don't mean owning as in they're yours, but I mean putting them up and saying, well, this bit's working, but this bit isn't. Um, and I also believe that that level of transparency about owning up where where things aren't working um, is um, uh, is important because it gives credibility when things are. So I used to you know, quite willingly say, well, look, we're, we're making these eco efficiencies which are, are funding the you know, the USLP and. And surprise, surprise, uh, eco-efficiencies are are good for the planet because you're saving um, uh, the impact on the planet, but you're saving money as well. But I'd equally point out that we said that we'd buy all our palm oil sustainably. And sustainable palm oil is a premium price. um, And uh, we have to own up to that premium and be really transparent about it. So part of it, I think, is being transparent. You won't be surprised... Uh, the CFO at the time says, yeah, "Don't worry, Keith. I'll take the savings, but I won't take the premium." Um, but I did try and say they have to come together and one uh, Peter pays Paul. Uh, but I also uh, put all of energy on the marketing side to, uh, to save money, and we saved um, you know, literally uh, well, I saved billions. Certainly, 1.8 billion uh, over that time in, in, in marketing efficiencies, and I think it was important to do that as part of the credibility. So. I think part of it is uh, being just as willing to talk about um, cash flow um, uh, or just as willing to talk about the, um, the savings program as the CFO. Ne- ne- never let the CFO um, own some metrics that they can then beat you over the head with. Um, if anyone's going to beat you over the head, beat yourself over the head um, in front of the CFO. And then you'll think uh, he or she will think you're taking it seriously uh, and, 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 and seeing the full picture. Because marketers can pick and choose um, their data to to sort We've been
0: known to do that. So, so let's get back to the journey. So you, you're, you're engaging internally. Can yeah. you talk a little bit more about the... So you, you'd been a, CFO, a CMO functionally before, but now this was different because now you own comms. Um, and you were engaging with a, a much broader multi-stakeholder um, set outside Unilever. Talk yeah. a little bit about how that was.
1: Yeah, so I mean, NGOs. So when I first came in, um, uh, at the very beginning, we had uh, people from Greenpeace, dressed in orangutan outfits, climbing on the front of Unilever House. I remember. Really um, and um, uh, the line to me from my board colleagues, my executive colleagues was, Keith, sort that out, you know. Uh, and this is all about palm oil, and this is before the Unilever sustainable living plan. I hasten to say, wind forward uh, eight years when uh, Kraft Heinz were making the very bold takeover bid of Unilever uh, and we had a very comprehensive plan to defend uh, Unilever and week one was all about the uh, economic success of Unilever and driving value and week two which we never got to but was going to be a communication about our values so it's about value and values and to show you the difference in, in change in that week two Greenpeace is gonna come out um, in support of Unilever in that week too, which is it would be extraordinary. Greenpeace supporting a multinational, but what they're basically saying is we want more multinationals like Unilever who are trying to make a positive difference, even though they'd agree uh, very quickly that we're not getting it completely right, and I would say that as well, rather than you know, multinationals who have a, a different point of view. So yes, I went out to meet Save the Children, and UNICEF, etc. I started the Unilever Foundation, um, to be very proactively uh, engage um, uh, different stakeholders uh, and did a lot of listening. I mean, you, you've got to listen, listen to understand, not listen to be seen to listen, but listen to understand. And we invited them in and, and we used to report every year the progress we were making against the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. Uh, you won't be surprised, all the success and achievement metrics were presented by Paul, our CEO, and all the targets we were missing was presented by me. Um, <laughs> No, you you make
0: such an important point. (laughs) I wanted to, actually, I I want to stand still on that for a second. You remind me of a conversation that I had with uh, Tex Gunning, who um, went on to lead the world's number one or two paint company, which is an incredibly polluting process. I mean, paint factories are not pleasant places to live around, I can tell you. And he talked about, and this is also uh, over a decade ago, but he talked about engaging with the NGOs that cared, and there were lots of them, around what the, this industry was doing, and saying, look, people need paint. There's lots of reasons why you need paint. If you don't use paint, your buildings collapse, your woodworks and all that. So there's very good functional reasons for using paint. And we agree that, it doesn't, um, that, that, that there is lots of polluting and consequences, but we want to get better. And so on this point of transparency, again, I think there are many parts of the world where people, and perhaps this is personal, feel they can't have the conversation until there's good news. And I think the bigger point you're making is, no, start when it's bad news. Start when, uh, but with full transparency. As long as you're willing to go the journey that there has to be effort and intent and improvement on that journey. But start with transparency, right? Uh,
1: the answer is in, in the question. I think what you have to do is uh, simple ambition, uh, ambitious targets, and then be very transparent I can remember uh, at that very beginning the Unilever board saying, but hold on we're setting targets we don't even know how to, to achieve and I said no we don't and some we won't achieve but others we will and we did surprise ourselves some ones were much easier to achieve than others and, and some we I don't think we'll ever achieve but the NGOs never gave us a, a seriously hard time because at the end of the day we said this is where we're going this, this is directional this is what we're trying to achieve and we had 50 time-based targets. And you can track our progress. And and when we were missing targets, we'd say, "Look, could someone help us here? We don't know how to achieve this target." And uh, and yeah, you know, the amazing thing about the startup world and partnerships, someone stepped forward to say, "Well, have you thought of this or or that?" So I think it's working uh, in yeah. a in a more more broad extended way. And I don't feel you have to come up with all the answers.
0: Well, it, it, I mean, and, and we'll go on back to the journey, but I, to emphasise this point, we well, obviously we're now. in a a totally new environment everybody's talking about the the new reality or the next reality and we don't know what it's going to look like but we did a poll among the IRG participants last week uh, a good uh, 60 of them uh, and and we asked to what degree will your future strategy uh, be more human-centric multi-stakeholder centric and uh, it was 78 percent people said that not only was there uh, more of a sense of understanding of the importance of human centricity, but also a willingness now to insert that into the strategy. But I think people don't know how, and what you're saying is, doesn't matter that you don't know how, but if you are true to the intent and you're willing to be transparent and engage, people are actually gonna help you. It's back to the open innovation of Dr. and Gamble and your foundry and so. If you state the intent, people will come with answers that you haven't thought of. And anyway, I wanna get back to your journey,
1: so big bold vision what do you want to ever call it strategy, vision, purpose You know, name something you want to go after the next thing then is to of course you know, develop a plan uh, against that then engaging everyone and, and really everyone inside and outside business at scale and then of course deliver you've got to really manage delivery uh, and, and have you say transparent metrics so yes of course I've talked about the metrics we had on, on the environment whether that being around waste or water or electricity we had societal ones on diversity and inclusion uh, but also then through to uh, supporting smallholder farmers and creating livelihoods and, uh, and then start charting over time but be willing to change as well i know uh we got accused occasionally of changing metrics because they were t- too difficult to achieve and we're ducking so we absolutely uh, we haven't been able to achieve this but be mad to carry on doing something like that so we're going to change to do that instead but then the power, I think you have to sort of manage the energy of the organisation and the energy of your, of your team. And I'm a great believer in, in the first thing you need to do is manage your own energy, because if you're low in energy, I guarantee what, what, no matter how good you are, you'll be transmitting that to the people around you. And There are some people who walk into a room and suck the very oxygen out of the air, and with that all, opportunity and possibility go, go out the window as well. But there are other people who bring possibilities and opportunities. I think what you need to try and do is, is bring that sort of positive energy. And I'm not suggesting that you need to be 100% Tigger every day, um, but you don't need to be 100% E or either. And I think that's very true to the. Can the <laughs> transmit bring...
0: that, please? <laughs> We're only winning the pool, are we?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you know, people right now are under a lot of stress and strains, and that's totally understandable. But I do think that in that sort of term I know all HR people hate about radiators and drains, uh, of course, we're all a bit up and down at different times, but be you know, more of, uh, of a radiator and less, less of a drain in, in, in managing the dynamics. So looking at the plan and trying to find the positive way forward and engaging people on that journey, I'm a great believer that leadership is is helping people be at their best more of the time. And what we all are is, we all are a bit brilliant, a bit mediocre, and a bit shitty. And if you can get people to be shitty less of the time and brilliant more of the time across the whole business, the whole business lifts. Um, And if you can get people to play on the front foot and invest in their success and the business success, I think this can make a huge difference. But you need a plan, a strategy and an engagement plan uh, to make that
0: happen. We, we've talked about your role as a change leader in, in, in an organization like Unilever, the scale of uh, 160,000 people. We've talked about your role as, um, as a partner in society with relationships with NGOs, and, uh, but also with your employees. Uh, let's focus the last 10 minutes on, on your role as a marketer because, of course, Uh, through and through, you are a marketer. You've just talked about the personal characteristics, uh, the inspiring storyteller, the infectious energy, the role you play in in, in making people uh, feel that. Let's talk about the functional side. I mean, a lot has changed and you've been on the forefront. You've been, I think you were voted world's number one marketer in every organization that I've ever heard of over the last few years. And now... You're moving on as a board member, and, uh, and I'd, I'd love your reflections for our audience. These are all you know, CMOs and CMO minus one level, uh, or growth leaders that are trying to achieve change. But if you go to the function of marketing, what do you think are the key qualities for a CMO to succeed in the next few years?
1: Well, I think the first and most important uh, for any marketer, but I'd say business person um, as well, because actually a good business person is actually a great marketer um, and because they are interesting consumers and customers. So the first and most important thing I think is about being curious. I think curiosity is the most important thing um, and being curious about what's going on in the world and how you, your brand, your service uh, can, can, can uh, achieve um, a future which is has a more positive impact uh, on the world and on people. And, you know, curiosity one of the first things I do when I visit someone's house is I go to the bathroom um, after you know, don't want to roll, I just go to the blue straight away lock the door and open the cupboards um, and uh, just see what they've got in their cupboards because you get um, a lot
0: of invitations do you
1: <laughs> I think Mark's been curious about what's around you of course you've got to be big market research reports but you can also talk to friends and families together so the first thing I think is, is being curious I do believe being um, people-focused, put people first, um, and and real people. You know, people aren't a, a head of hair uh, looking for a shampoo or a pair of armpits looking for deodorants. They're real people with real lives, and understanding those dynamics would be a, another key important one. I do think building brand love is critically important, um, and branding as a mechanism as differentiation. If anyone follows me on Twitter. Uh, that wonderful YouTube clip that puts all the COVID ads together, that all yeah. look the same, and, you know, yeah. zero differentiation. So building brand love and brands with purpose is a, a fantastic way of, of achieving that. And then last but not least, before I get on to the, the measures and, and, and delivery bit, but from a marketing perspective, it's about unlocking the magic um, and realizing that marketing is art and science. It is creativity and effectiveness. It is magic and logic, and, and more than ever. I mean, We need to get more magic and be more creative to break through the clutter and get noticed. But we need to put more logic and leveraging data and insight, and that's more possible than ever before. And, and building the people data centers, 33, I believe, now in, in Unilever, to continually scrape the social network to give deep insight, to carry on feeding those very trends that I think uh, really helped Unilever, is it, hugely important. And then the measures. I think the measures are, are actually internal on the capabilities of your people. You don't have to be a brilliant marketer to be a brilliant marketing leader, but you have to surround yourself by brilliant marketers. I think you have to be a very good marketer. And I really believe you're know, committing to training and committing to coaching. You don't, you've never seen a football team that sits around eating uh, chips and drinking beer all week and then gets up at the weekend and give it a go. No, they train, they coach, they build skills. But somehow in business, that's all seen. I don't have time for that because I'm too busy. So yeah. I believe building skills, especially for marketers, in this ever-changing world, you're very quickly out of skill. And that's why I think you know, marketers do need to tweet and post because they do need to watch TV and cinema and they need to live the life their consumers are, are living. And and that capability bit's important. And then the other measure is uh, I think you have to have measures of yes distribution and penetration and uh, and repeat and through to the business ones of cash flow and profit and turnover etc and if you can do the metrics bit and then the capabilities bit um, i think you can unlock the potential of your marketing team
0: what you just said in many ways you made a plea for for continuous learning for curiosity for development not being too busy you mentioned your own trips to silicon valley when no one else was going there i know jim stengel was the one that really i think we both give him that credit for that was was the one that taught marketers senior marketers to go to Cannes, which until then had been just a, a party for creatives now it became a learning place and a, and a real i think source for inspiration for all marketers but you're bringing two sides together i was talking to raja of mastercard who now is uh, the chair of both the ANA and I think the WFA too. And he's, he's known for, when he got his new role, for saying, I'm gonna learn from everybody for the first 50 weeks. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn every week because there's so much new in marketing for me. But what he's also done, and I think you can take credit for that, as can, Jim, is you've become educators. I mean, you mentioned Twitter and, and your other social media activities. In many ways, you're also giving back. You're, you're sharing, you're educating. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Antonio Lucio about this. We have such a, as marketers, as a marketing leader, you have such an education role among the non-marketers, but also among the marketers, don't you?
1: Absolutely. And, and, and I do think social media is a great way of, of, of sharing those. And, um, I, I, and I can't be talking total rubbish, but I'll let you be the judge. You know? I, I have managed to get a few, uh, a few hundred thousand followers. But what I try and do is pass on uh, interesting things I see or interesting things that, that, are, that are going on. And it's in a way you could never done before. I mean, it was, it was quite difficult to do continuous learning. Uh, you had to be a, a real student and, and buy books and all that stuff. But now, actually, if you just graze a little bit, um, you can pick up all sorts of different insight. And, and also, at the same time, you know, living the space and, and be, being a, a person that understands from others as well, because we're, we're all still learning. You,
0: you make a really important point. It's probably a good closing thought. A lot of people talk about the importance now of right brain and left brain data and creativity, and you've mentioned that uh, as well. Many people talk about that, but um, and and we captured that with the sort of Da Vinci shortcut. But what not a lot of people know is that Da Vinci was both an engineer and an artist, but he was also one of the founders of the humanist movement. Satya Natella is a humanist. So many of the big leaders, and I would say that you, with all your work at Unilever, have brought back the focus. On the human, across all stakeholders and your colleagues and the organisations you work with, and that's so much bigger than the customer or the consumer. It's the humans you work with. And, and Keith, I think everyone listening will take away from this not only that it's possible, but it's been done. The data is there. The results in business results are there. And I, I think you've you've paved the way for many to follow. So I really want to thank you. For your uh, willingness to share not just what went well but also what didn 't on behalf of everyone listening, so many thanks
1: well uh, th- well, thank you very much, and thanks so many uh, people to, to uh, join but uh, the one hand, slightly leave one thought um, you chose to become a, a marketer, um, and that 's why we 're talking about marketing um, you didn 't choose to become an accountant or an investment banker or a taxidermist or whatever. Being a marketer is fun. Um, it's, uh, it is about curiosity. It is about serving people. And I think we've got to remember more than ever right now, have some fun doing all this. I, I'm a great believer that miserable people deliver miserable results. And marketers should bring some fun uh, and some excitement into business. Do that, yes, of course, we'll bring uh, growth and we'll serve consumers better, but we'll bring a little bit of uh, hope and energy as well.
0: Keith? wonderful talking to you everyone listening and viewing thank you keith all the best